Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I came across an audio track, audio and video track last night, which features the uh, coach of the Louisville University women's basketball team, Jeff Waltz. And Coach Waltz was speaking after a post-game loss that was carried uh, by ESPN. And he ripped into the effort of his team, and he blames the societal practice of awarding participation trophies to uh, kids who play, kids who lose, kids who win. It doesn't matter whether you win, lose, or just play. You get a trophy. And we've talked about this issue in the past, and I, I fundamentally disagree with this concept. Absolutely disagree with the idea that you receive a trophy just for being there. It sends the wrong message. Well, I want you to have a listen, because we're going to talk about this, take some calls and hear your thoughts and experiences. But I want you to have a listen to the coach of the Louisville University women's basketball team, Jeff Waltz. And this is from the ESPN track. And then we're going to be speaking with Ashley Merriman. She is um, the... Uh, she joined us from, uh, from Los Angeles, and uh, she wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times, Losing is Good for You. She's also the co-author of Top Dog, the book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. I had a chance to talk to Ashley before the show, and she feels very strongly about this. I tweeted this out. Do you have any idea how much money is involved in trophies and awards for now for kids? It's a $3 billion industry annually in Canada and the United States. $3 billion. Have a listen to what Jeff Waltz, listen to what he says. The coach of the Louisville women's basketball team on participation trophies for everyone and how he believes that affected his own team. Have a listen. You've you got to have a will. You've got to have a will. There's sometimes, you know, they're, they're tired too. Walker Kipper played 40 minutes. Confrey played thir uh, 39. They're tired too. But who's got the will? Like I, like I said out there on the radio, we just live right now the generation of kids that are coming through. Everybody gets a damn trophy, okay? You finish last, you come home with, with a trophy. You kidding me? I mean, what's that teaching kids? It's okay to lose. And unfortunately, it's our society. It, it's what we're building for. And it's not just in basketball, it's in life. You know, everybody thinks they should get a job. Everybody thinks they should get a good job. No, that's not the way it works. But unfortunately, that's what we are preparing for. Because you finish fifth, you, you walk home with this nice trophy, parents are all excited. No. I mean, I, not to be too blunt, but you're a loser. Like, we're losers. We got beat. So you lost. There is no trophy for us. But unfortunately, the way everybody, the way these kids are brought up today, there is a trophy. Because nobody wants anybody to have hard feelings. Nobody wants to get their feelings hurt. Well, unfortunately, in the real world, I'm not sure how it is with, with, with your all's jobs. But with mine, if you lose enough, you get fired. And that's just the way it is. And I, I'm trying to explain to our kids, like, hey, I'm trying to prepare you for the real world. Because when you go to get a job, there's competition. And what are you going to do to stand out? But unfortunately, we're not preparing these kids, before they get to us at least, to be ready for that. You know, when you play three, four AAU games in one day, you lose three of them, and then you win the, la the, the last one, and everybody goes home happy. You're one in three. I mean, 
know, the, I know it's a long time ago, but yeah, God darn, the days we played, you, when you lost, you went home. There was no friendship bracket. You know, let's go on the left side to the friendship game so everybody can play two more games. No, you went home. You went home a loser. And then you worked at it if you wanted to be good. So I listened to that, and I thought that's really important stuff. He was frustrated because his team lost, but he had a message and a significant message that there is winning and there is losing. But in our society today, there's a lot of thinking that, look, you can't tell kids that there's winning and losing because you're going to damage their self-esteem. And my view has always been that, if, first of all, they're going to keep score themselves. They know who's winning and they know who's losing. The adults may try to fool them, but the kids understand. But if you constantly reinforce the message that there is no losing, that everyone's a winner and everyone is going to be successful and everyone's wonderful, what you're going to do is enforce narcissism where it exists and you're not preparing kids, young people, for the days of real challenge and the time when they're going to be called on to succeed. And if they don't succeed, there will be penalties. And that's called the real world. And that's what uh, Jeff Waltz was talking about. Joining me on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is uh, Ashley Merriman. Uh, she joins us from uh, California. She wrote a op-ed piece, which I absolutely think is terrific, in the uh, New York Times last uh, September, and the headline is, Losing is Good for You. She's also the, um, the co-author of Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing, and she's on Twitter at, at Ashley Merriman. That's M-A-M-E-R-R-Y-M-A-N. Ashley, thank you for, for taking the time. This, this really, really resonates with you. Tell us how significantly important this issue is to all of us. Oh, I think it's incredibly important, whether you're talking about coaches, Coach was correct. It affects job performance. I think it affects relationships as a whole. I, I, I am so passionately against the everybody gets a trophy program. I, I, it's, it's, the more I think about it, the, and the more science there is on it. For you know, a, a decade ago, it was sort of a theory. Like you were saying, if we build kids' self-esteem, that will lead to more achievement. But now we have thousands of studies on self-esteem and we've found out that that's just not true that achievement leads to increased self-esteem but it's a one-way street building self-esteem doesn't lead to more achievement it doesn't lead to working hard it doesn't lead to trying new things it, it leads to narcissism because kids are just constantly told you are innately wonderful and if you think about this you know, you're innately wonderful, then I don't need to try harder. I don't need to improve because you've already told me how special I am innately. And actually, research has shown that kids who are constantly overpraised underachieve because they are worried that, well, if I screw up, I'm going to actually prove to you I'm not as wonderful as you think I am. That's not good. And so they actually... Research has even found that kids who are constantly praised, constantly told they're wonderful, are more likely to cheat. They're more likely to you know, say, well, I could have tried, I could have done it if I wanted to, but I didn't care, so I just copied off someone else's paper. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It was a Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker who made... Uh, Headline news, I think about two years ago, uh, when he told his kids, his two boys, who were I think six and eight years of age, that they had to return their participation trophies. 
And uh, his point was, I, you know, I, I value that my kids got these, I guess, but they didn't win them. They got them for showing up. And I want my kids to understand it's a competitive world. And so those trophies go back. They get trophies when they win. They don't get trophies just for showing up. And the coach of the uh, Louisville women's basketball team, uh, Jeff Waltz, part of what he said, and we played you the clip a few minutes ago, but I just, I just want to read a couple of lines of what he said. You've got to have a will. You've got to have a will. Right now, the generation of kids that are coming through, everybody gets a damn trophy, okay? You finish last. You come home with a trophy. You're kidding me? I mean, what's it teaching kids? It's okay to lose. And unfortunately, it's our society. It's what we're building for. And Ashley Merriman, in her op-ed piece in the New York Times uh, last September, began with this paragraph. As children return to school this fall and sign up for a new year's worth of extracurricular activities, parents should keep one question in mind. Whether your kid loves Little League or gymnastics, ask the program organizer this. Which kids get awards? If the answer is everybody gets a trophy, find another program. Ashley Merriman is with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Actually, who's selling this whole concept, this whole idea? And I get the $3 billion. It's, it's a lot of money. So there's financial incentive to keep the trophy business going. But who's selling this concept? Well, trophy, I, I had started joking about a trophy industrial complex. And then I realized it was a $3 billion industry with two separate lobbying organizations. And I went, oh, my gosh, it really is a lobbying effort. And, in fact, there are op-eds from trophy industry bloggers on sports are so seasonal to even out the number of um, trophies we sell for kids. Maybe we should encourage parents to buy trophies every time their kid reads a book. Okay, so there's the, there's the financial incentive, and, and I get that, but who's the person, who are the people, who are, which are the organizations that are putting forward and, and sustaining the argument that every child deserves a trophy, and who's doing this so persuasively that it's actually working for them? It's not working for the kids, but it's working for them. Right. Well, you know, actually, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of coaches, whether we're talking about local soccer coaches who are just, you know, neighborhood family, all the way through Olympic coaches. And a lot of the coaches actually say that it's the parents of the kids on the team. And they don't want to give trophies out, but if they don't, they worry that their parents will leave and go to a, a different team that does give out trophies. Oh, boy. And so there's this almost competitive pressure, even when people think it's a bad idea to continue to give them. Because I actually know of multiple instances where teams decided from budget cuts or they just didn't agree with the practice not to give trophies. And then parents on their own went out and bought participation trophies for everyone on the team. So gave them out anyway. So, so some parents, maybe many parents, mm-hmm. are living vicariously through their kids and using their kids as bragging rights. Well, I think that is some of there it. There has to I be some of that there. Kids, I, I do think that parents, you know, when kids achieve, they feel they've achieved too. Yeah. But I actually, I think most people are really well-meaning and they think that they're helping their kids. The problem is the research says very clearly they're not. And kids with low self-esteem, that kid who never would have won a trophy, I really think this is all about protecting that kid. Yeah. But research has shown that kids who are struggling, who, who have you know, low self-esteem, when you overpraise them, when you say, oh, that's wonderful, they don't work harder the next time. They actually stop achieving. 
And we don't completely understand the reason for this. It could be they didn't believe you when you told them they were wonderful, or it could be sort of a bucket list. All I wanted was one trophy, and now I got it, so I guess I'm done. Yeah, I got it. I'm happy now. I'm I'm it. I'm it. Ashley, I... I don't... I'm sorry, I, I, I'm going to have to take a break, but I thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this. And uh, oh, it's at, at Ashley Merriman on, uh, on Twitter. And the book is Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. The Science of Winning and Losing. We'll talk again. Ashley, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Ashley Merriman, Losing is Good for You is the op-ed piece uh, in the New York Times. I was telling our, Will, our call screener, about the story to me that really sort of explains the whole thing about winning and losing and motivation to win. It's a story of a certain basketball player. At 15 years of age, as a high school freshman, he tried out for the basketball team and he didn't make it. They didn't get a trophy. He didn't get a consolation seat on the bench and a consolation shirt. He didn't get a speech that went like, well, you're so good that we're only going to play you for 30 seconds because a game because the other team would just be terrified to have to play against you. Now he got cut. He got sent home, and he was told, you're not good enough to play for our high school basketball team. You and you and you and you, you're cut. So he went home, and he decided that he didn't like that. He didn't like the feeling. And so he started to, he started to really work out, and he started to really practice And he started to make sure that he really got better. And the next year, he tried out for the basketball team again. And he made the team. And he very rapidly became the best player on that team at that high school. He then went on to university, got a scholarship, basketball scholarship. He went on to star at North Carolina. And then he went on to star with the Chicago Bulls. His name is Michael Jordan. Maybe the greatest basketball player of all time. But if at age 15 he'd been given a complimentary pass to make the team because someone didn't want to hurt his feelings, who knows if he tried hard enough? Who knows if he would have become the player we all got to see in be amazed at for so many years you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml i spoke with uh, premier wall who disagrees with the prime minister on the idea of a carbon tax and you heard that yesterday you'll hear a little more now and i spoke with the premier about the pipelines issue and about the fact that on friday the premier and uh, or the prime minister and premiers will meet with uh, aboriginal first nations as well to talk about pi- pipelines and about the pan-Canadian climate plan. Have a listen to part two of the interview with Premier Brad Wall of Saskatchewan. Premier, you tweeted congratulations to Justin Trudeau concerning his pipeline decision of the possible scenarios and decisions available to Prime Minister Trudeau and the federal government. Did he deliver, based on political and environmental challenges, the best-case scenario for him? He took Northern Gateway off the table, of course. He did. Northern Gateway had been approved by the previous government, and we, we're in all of the above uh, province when it comes to pipelines. We believe that the long-term interests of Canada, a country with the third largest oil reserves on Earth, 
the long-term interest will be uh, will be preserved and advanced by by us building pipelines to tidewater and all of the above should be uh, our approach Uh, however there are economic there's environmental there's political provincial federal realities and i do think the federal government's made the right decision here i mean to have line three included in the big announcement was you know that's a pretty straightforward uh, approval in my view i mean there'll still be concerns and there needs to be due diligence but uh, it's certainly not in the uh, on the sort of on the controversial meter. It really hasn't made an appearance. By the way, that's a very important pipeline for Saskatchewan. About 1.1 billion dollars worth of investment in the province as a result. And we've got a great pipe maker in Regina called Evraz, and they're very likely to be able to recall some workers who've been laid off of of late. So it's very positive. Um, and uh, Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan is important. Anytime we give Canadian oil to the coast to Tidewater, we get a chance to have more than one customer. When we are locked to one customer, the United States, as much as we value them, we're also locked to the West Texas price, and we forego the World Brent price, which is always higher. Now it's not as much. The differential is not as great as it used to it used to be, but it usually is significant. And so that's why, even though there's no Saskatchewan oil to be in that particular pipeline, we support it. Here's what I would say, though, Roy. We've heard others come forward from in provincial capitals and the prime minister, though, since the announcement of in, implying that because we are pricing carbon, because of a carbon tax, we now have pipelines. This is a big leap for me because all of the people who oppose it, you know the argument, Roy, the argument is this carbon tax, if we self-immolate in terms of our economy, this carbon tax buys us social license, uh, which is a term I'm not particularly fond of, but it's not, it's one they use. This is a leap to be sure because name me one group one mayor, one environmental group, one First Nations leader, that, ha- or one individual citizen that has now changed their, their position from being opposed to Kinder Morgan to being in favor of Kinder Morgan because Alberta or Canada is going to have a carbon tax. There is no connection. There is no connection to it, and nobody's changed their position. This was a, it's a bit of a contri- political contrivance of parties who are kind of rationalizing to their base, I guess, as to why they would approve a pipeline when maybe a lot of their base doesn't support it. The two have no connection. It hasn't changed anyone's mind. It doesn't buy social license. What happened is the federal government made the right decision, and that's what it takes. Whatever it's striped, the federal government has to step out in leadership and say this pipeline's important for this country, and we approve it. And that approval needs to happen regardless of whether or not we have a, t- a price or a tax on carbon. Premier Wall, I've heard another position or argument that I have great difficulty with, and, and, and it's this. To help Mr. Trudeau make his case for pipelines, the challenge to his national carbon tax should have to become more muted. Oh, well, again, if there's no link between the two, then well, exactly then that, then, then that argument falls down as well. And there just fundamentally isn't. Right? You know, let's just revisit what the principle of this social license is. If you'll, you know, that, that, that we've been told if we would just price it, if we tax carbon, even though none of our trading partners are doing it if we would do it here in canada then we would get social license from our international partners who don't have a carbon tax that's somehow that's specious i think and also from fellow canadians we'd get that social license to build it but again i just re- I, I, i'm sorry to repeat myself it doesn't change anyone's mind there still be protests in bc from the same groups that we're going to protest the pipeline whether or not we had a carbon tax or not they don't they separate the two they don't want a pipeline period uh and i i think What's dangerous about this rationale is, is how, how potentially dangerous the carbon tax is itself. Uh, if, we, if we accept this notion that these are the measures Canada must adopt 
in order to get our product to Tidewater, our oil to Tidewater, in other words, policies that we know, even from the federal government's own documents, will, call, will, will hurt our economy. Uh, that's not any way to build a, a national economy. That's not any way to run a country. I don't know how you quid pro quo bad tax policy with a pipeline approval, but here I, I do want to emphasize we do support this. At the end of the day, the federal government had to make a decision that I think a lot of its political supporters don't like, and they made it. Uh, and we hope the same will be true for Energy East. We hope the advocacy will be there for, for Keystone now that the president-elect has said that will be a top priority for a new administration. Um, one more question for you, and I hope as well that Energy East does finally get approved. But there's thinking that I've heard expressed by at least some economists that Trans Mountain, for example, or any of the pipelines, may be a losing proposition financially. If the international price of oil remains low, is there a profit to be generated by building new pipelines and delivering oil sands bitumen to, a, for example, a Pacific Coast terminal? And uh, Asian markets pay less for bitumen than do their U.S. counterparts. And then another part to this question or this this equation was, we should probably be building refineries as well as pipelines in Canada. Well, I mean, I think that's true. I think value added is what we all desire. At the end of the day, though, we need a market. The market signal will signal as to whether or not it makes more sense to, to add value here or export it. That's the case, by the way, for a lot of what Canada grows or mines or produces. There has to be a market case to make it here and ship it to places uh, far away and and if that happens, and as it has in, in the past, we'll have more uh, value added here. Um, well, you know, with respect to Energy East and, uh, and, and, and the equivalency, perhaps, of the comparison to uh, Kinder Morgan, uh, with respect, you know, on, on, the, uh, on the case, on the economic case of either one, remember that Energy East gives us the chance, and it's about export as well, to be fair, but remember it gives us a chance to replace imports. When I was in New Brunswick here in June and, speaking at the energy conference there we went out to the irving oil port facility there and there was a ship from saudi arabia unloading middle eastern oil into canada so i think there's a case for a, a national pipeline system that removes that that would give us energy independence that gives us the chance uh, even if it doesn't happen right away necessarily gives us a chance to reduce the need to import oil from places like saudi arabia it doesn't make any sense when we have all this oil in canada so I mean, I think the pipeline companies are best are best suited to make the decision as to which pipeline uh, is uh, is feasible, uh, and I I expect the economists are weighing in with opinions, and the forecasters are that's their duty, but it'll be the companies that will have to make that final decision. Premier, thank you so much for the time. Roy, thank you. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. We spoke yesterday about Kelly Leach, the Conservative Member of Parliament, Dr. Kelly Leach, who is running for the Conservative Party leadership and wants to be the Prime Minister of this country. And there was a lot of favorable response to to Kelly Leach, even though we don't know much about what Dr. Leach would want to do. But if you heard the show, you know what it was about. So here's one woman who wants to be Prime Minister of Canada in 2019. There's another woman who wants to be Prime Minister of Canada in 2019, maybe more than two, but here's, I'm just talking about these two. The other one is the leader of the Green Party, federally, Elizabeth May, who I invited to come on this show to talk about this issue. And Ms. May couldn't do it because of scheduling issues. Now, I sometimes would wonder about whether I'm being told the truth or whether somebody's trying to skunk me with, uh, with an excuse. But I would not think that of Elizabeth May because she has never to my knowledge, ducked being on the air on this show. been a while since we've talked to her, but 
I've never known her to run away from, uh, from, from, from talking to us. So, but you can't do it. It's still important that we talk about it. I find it outrageous that a sitting member of Canada's federal parliament and a federal party leader states she's willing to go to prison in order to block and stop pipelines. And here's why. Elizabeth May is an elected member of the National Government of Canada. That government, like it or not, is led by a liberal majority, and the liberal prime minister has determined the federal government will support the building of two pipelines, Trans Mountain, which leads to a terminal in British Columbia, and Enbridge's new and bigger version of Line 3, which leads to the United States. So now the sole member of the Green Party of Canada sitting in Parliament, Elizabeth May, said, of course, I'll go to jail to block pipelines. I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with First Nations. That's what she said. I don't challenge First Nations' right to oppose the building of pipelines and going to court. And I don't deny that many, maybe most British Columbians, don't want the pipeline. I understand that emotion. They worry about their ecosystem and their coastline. There are courts, there are options for those who oppose the pipelines to follow. There's also civil disobedience, which will likely take place. That's not without precedent, and that too can be dealt with by law of the land. My issue, for the sake of this segment of this program today, is with a federal member of parliament, the party leader, stating that she's willing to break the law to go to prison in order to block the pipeline. Now, Elizabeth May should choose. Either she's a member of the federal parliament, who respects the decisions of that parliament, and perhaps grudgingly, and not necessarily quietly, conforms to the decision of the parliament, or she's a climate environmental activist willing to take her chances by participating in an illegal attempt to block the construction of pipelines. Elizabeth May cannot be both member of a democratic parliament and an individual declaring she'll go to prison in order to block pipelines. Now, as I said, I invited Ms. May to appear on this program, but she can't because of her schedule. So I'm going to make a demand as a citizen, a demand of Elizabeth May. Ms. May, if you're willing to go to jail in order to block pipelines, then I would say to you as one citizen that you should resign as a member of Canada's parliament because clearly you're not prepared to honor the decision of that parliament, which proceeds on the basis of majority vote. So, would I be wrong to say that you've lost confidence in the federal government of Canada? That if you have... You can no longer function as a member of that government. What you're doing now is using your position as leader of the Green Party of Canada and its only elected member of parliament to gain attention for your opposition to pipelines. I don't think Canadians should be paying you $163,700 a year, plus contributing hugely to your gold-plated pension plan, if you're not willing to adhere to the decision of our national and democratic parliament. Then why, Ms. May... Aren't you protesting at the Port of Montreal as tankers from the Middle East make their way up the St. Lawrence River past the beautiful Gaspé Peninsula? Why aren't you blocking rail cars filled with oil and oil products crisscrossing Canada? I don't want to contribute to paying your salary or contribute to funding your political party, the Green Party, or funding your pension plan, your MP pension plan, if you as the leader of the party and member of parliament is stating publicly that you'll go to prison to defy the decision of the Parliament of Canada and the laws of this country. The way parliament works is there's a majority decision that is taken. And then, grudgingly, as I said before, perhaps, 
you go along. You might oppose, you vocally oppose, you challenge, you do what you can to intercede. But to say that you'll go to prison, that you're willing to break the law, the criminal code of this country, as a member of Canada's national parliament, who wants to be prime minister of this country, I have huge problems with that. This is all stuff I wanted to say to Elizabeth May. It'll get back to her. The last word goes to you. Is there an argument to be made that Elizabeth May should either retract her statement that she'll go to jail in order to block pipelines or she should resign as a member of parliament? She's being paid a lot of money to be an MP. About three times what an average Canadian family earns per year. Or perhaps you support Elizabeth May staying on as an MP and committing to defying Parliament and breaking the law of Canada in order to block pipelines and go to prison, if that's what it takes. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Elizabeth May says she'll go to prison, she'll go to jail. Of course she'll go to jail in order to stop pipelines. She's a member of Parliament, Marg, in Wasega Beach, or Wasega, Ontario. Mark, what do you say? Has she compromised her right to be a member of Parliament? Does she need to retract what she said or not? Well, I think it would be wise. I mean, if she... I don't... I'm not surprised. She is the Green Party's leader, so I'm not surprised about her position. But it would be kind of nice if people are always saying no, 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 would come up with a decent alternative. Well, I mean, the, the alternative is not to say that I'm going to go to, I will go to prison. She wants to be prime minister of the country. She does legitimately believe she should be the prime minister of Canada. And that's the argument she's going to make in 2019, that she should be PM. And yet she says she would go to prison and, and, and break the law if necessary. That just Those are not complementary positions. Well, I, I really do think that leaders should just stop sticking with one one. Uh, one decision and, and look at alternatives. It's just ridiculous. All right, Mark. Thank you for the call. Sunday afternoon, Green Show Chorus Radio Network, 800-263-2428, 800-263-2428. And do you take Elizabeth May's candidacy for Prime Minister of Canada seriously? Another question. Um, I, I remember when she, there was a big, the big argument was whether she should participate in the televised leaders' debates. And she'll tell you, I was one of the first national media people who was on her side on that. But this is all wrong. Ruben is in Edmonton calling us on the Chorus Radio Network. Hey, Ruben. Hello, Ruben. Where's Ruben? Ruben isn't there. How about Vi in Edmonton? Hi, Vi. Hi, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. So what do you say about Elizabeth May? I think she should step down if she says she's going she's to go to jail for, over a pipeline because we all have to do things we don't want, but I wouldn't go wanting to break the law to, you know, just if I don't get my way. Is there, I mean, where is the line that the, that the member of parliament may not cross? Is that what it is, the law? Like you I can't break so. the law? I mean, I, I, so, this, yeah. I, I find this really disturbing because you swear an oath. Your, mm-hmm. your responsibility is to represent the people of the country. That's why you're in the national parliament. That's right. You're not there just representing your, your, your own deeply held beliefs. Well, some of these people seem to think that that's what they're there for. Right? 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, you can have, and you should have deeply held beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important that you have deeply held beliefs. I don't, I don't hold that against. I mean, we all have beliefs, things that we believe in. But as far as going that far and you know, say I'll go to jail for it, no, I don't think that's. Right. And what message is that sending to people who would oppose the pipelines? What, what, what message are they receiving from Elizabeth May that it's okay to engage in sufficient? Civil disobedience, the cross the line into breaking criminal law? Is that, is that the message. message the MP is sending? It sounds like it. That's it sounds like it to me. So who knows, right? Well. But like I said, I wouldn't go as far. Okay, like, there are things I don't agree with, but like as far as that carbon tax that we're going to have in Alberta, I thank don't like it, but I'm not going to go and breaking the law. Because no, no. I right, thank like you. It. Thanks for the call from Edmonton. What's the weather like? Uh, it's a little bit windy and getting a little bit colder. Yeah, it's winter time. Like they said, it's supposed to be. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Thank you for the call. If you're saying that you're willing to go to prison, what message are you sending about protesting the pipeline? I don't think Elizabeth May is a bad person. and No way she's a bad person. She's a good person. I personally quite like her. In fact, she was the one one person in the... uh, in the environmental movement, who urged scientists who support human-induced global warming to engage in a debate with scientists who challenge that notion or that position on this show. We had the scientists who opposed it ready to go. Those who support it wouldn't. And Elizabeth May sent emails to to the scientists we wanted on the air who supported human-induced global warming and urged them to appear on the program, and they still wouldn't. But that's a big line that she's crossed. Big line, in my view. Clay is in Regina. Clay, what do you say? Thank you for the call. What do you say Elizabeth May should do? Retract or, 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 leave, or leave as an MP? Yeah, she, Elizabeth May, you know, she's good for the Green Party and that, but she'll never be the Prime Minister of Canada. Well, I don't never. think so. But... She wants to be, but she I is. She, she yeah, is. she wants to be. Yeah, yeah. She has good intentions, but she'll never. But she is a. She is a member of parliament, a member of our national assembly. Our member I know of, she is. That makes She's the been national. Been around a long time too. Yeah. Has she crossed the line that she can't afford to cross? Has she so compromised her position that either she retracts the "I'll go to jail" statement or leaves as a member of parliament? Yeah, she has to retract that. And if she doesn't. Well, then she should resign. Yeah. Like you like you guys were saying earlier, when Bradwell's going to uh, out east there for this conference on the, the uh, carbon tax, he's the only one against it. Like, um, I don't know, the, like you said, these politicians in the public sector, they'd be working at McDonald's, most of them. Nothing wrong with working at McDonald's. And that's a fact, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I... I th- no, there's a lot of them could not survive in the private sector. No, no kidding. They couldn't. They certainly couldn't make the salaries and have the kind of pension that they have of being as being members of parliament. They couldn't. I know because we were not all of them. But butts off all year and what? Or, all our life, these guys got to do what? Five years and they get a full pension? No, they have to do two elections or six years. Okay. To get to get the to get years, to get and most of them are seasoned veterans, you know. Yeah. But I tell you, there's, there's one guy, I don't often agree with him, but I, I, 
I, I don't doubt his commitment, and that's Ralph Goodell from Saskatchewan. He has been a member of parliament and a me- federal minister for many years. He could have quit a long time ago and collected yeah. a big pension and gone and lived uh, on a beach somewhere and just collected checks from Canada. And But he stays at the game. He stays at it, whether you agree with him or not. He obviously cares about the country and cares about doing what he does. And I think yeah, he did no, a great job with he's, the RCMP. He's, my grandma used to vote for him all the time. She's 94 now. Yeah, Ralph's been around for, oh, shucks. A long time. Long time, eh? Yeah, long time. Thank you, Clay. Okay, buddy. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. You have a great, you. great rest you of the too. Sunday. Yeah, a lot of time for, uh, for Ralph Goodell. Just from the fact that he could have left a long time ago. And as I said, just collected that big MP pension and wandered off into the sunset. But he stays at it, stays committed to doing what he's doing, and he's the uh, public safety minister now, and I think he did a good job representing the women who um, were brought forward the sexual harassment and sexual assault complaints against the RCMP. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Follow me on Twitter at The Roy Green Show, where I just reposted a video from Mike Masati showing his son Justin working out at the uh, clinic where Justin's being treated in uh, Tijuana, Mexico, treated for brain cancer. And uh, it's just remarkable, just remarkable to see what Justin is doing. Um, Mike and Justin join us on the show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mike, Justin, hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Roy. And how, hey, Roy. Hey, Justin. I'm just so impressed, Justin, with uh, with your workout. It's, it looks, I mean, it really looks great. Thank you. You must feel, I mean, it must be so encouraging to feel that. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, Mike, remind us, please, of Justin's yeah. condition when you and he arrived in Tijuana. And, and when was that? That was October the 4th. And, and tell us what Justin's condition was when you arrived. When we got here, Justin was bedridden. He couldn't really get up out of bed, so he couldn't walk. He had no balance. Um, he was having a, one or two seizures a day. Um, he wasn't eating or drinking that much. His weight was around 120 pounds, and he was down, uh, down 40 pounds. And today? And today, well, if, if for you and everyone else that has seen the video, it's just an amazing um, recovery so far. He's 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 doing his uh, he's doing many exercises, and that's with being blind. Um, it's amazing. It uh, is amazing. The, the treatment has worked up on that. It's amazing because he has a very rare and aggressive brain cancer, but the coordination in his video is remarkable. Yes, it is, and that it's. Probably all the hard work he did before um, he got cancer as a soccer player because he was practicing almost seven days a week doing stuff like that. So yeah. I'm sure that helps as well. Mike, what does the clinic indicate it can do to successfully treat Justin's brain cancer? What are they telling you they can do? They're telling us that what we're doing right now with the 15 treatments plus the DMSO and the chemo, we just keep doing what we're doing. And so we will do, we just finished a round of chemo, and we'll do one more round of chemo, which will keep us here till the end of December. At that point, we will do an MRI, and we'll see where we are. Okay. 
and and uh, you mentioned the DMSO, and uh, which is a which opens up the cells to allow the chemo to attack the cancer, as I understand. Yes. So, are, are they telling you that long term? I, I mean, if they continue, that Justin's recovery will continue. They believe. Well, they don't know. His cancer is so rare that um, they can't honestly say one way or the other if the improvement will continue or if it will plateau. Okay. But they are they are very surprised um, how quickly he uh, seems to be uh, doing, how quickly he's recovering from, from, from the way he was. Well, before. what you described in one month, virtually exactly one month. That one, it is one month. Uh, right? Oh no! You said October the fourth or November the fourth? No, October. Yeah. October. So two months. Been on treatment since October the uh, October the fourth. Okay, so two months. He's put on forty pounds. He's walking. Yes. He's talking. He's exercising, and people can go to at the Roy Green Show on Twitter and look at the video. Meanwhile, what has Ontario offered you? They've offered us nothing. Absolutely nothing. I, I don't even get a communication from the premier or from the minister. Nothing, nothing from them. And what were you told was Justin's prognosis before you chose to go to Mexico? What did they? What were you oh, told by the doctors? Within weeks or months, he was going to die. There was no no doubt in their mind. And they did, as I recall, they did offer you offered Justin a hospital bed and chemotherapy, which they yeah. had said would not do any. Any anything That's positively? Correct. It wouldn't do any good, but they would offer it, so we would, you know, at the taxpayer's expense, we would be, uh, yeah, we would be in the hospital getting treatment that wouldn't work. Who's supporting you in in Ontario? Is there anybody in the political spectrum who's really standing up for you? Yep, um, our local MPP, um, Monique Taylor, is supporting us. She has uh, put out a petition, and she's also made a member statement. Also. Frank Delana, uh, Shelley Martel. You know, okay, so, there's, so you do have some political support, yeah. but there's nothing coming back from the government because they said. Nothing from the government at all. Yeah. yeah. And their argument is what? That it's experimental treatment? It's their, yeah, it's experimental treatment, so we won't cover it. Yeah. Hey, Justin, for experimental treatment, you look pretty good. You really do. I mean, I could see those moves, you know. I'm not just saying this. this obviously, you're, you're, there's athletic moves. It's working. Yeah. Well, isn't that great? So when you... We, yeah, Justin, it is working right, and it's, and it's shocking that, um, to me, that the, the premier who can't offer... The, you know, the medical community can't offer the treatment in Ontario, and it is being offered here. Just, just cover the treatment. Yeah. They'll tell you, know, you that 13, I'm paying thirteen thousand dollars Canadian a week, and you know I'm, I have a couple of good fundraisers, fundraisers, and we've had to go fund me, but they can't possibly cover what uh, is happening down here. Yeah. Well, there's the GoFundMe page, and and people can go there to just look for Justin Masotti's page, M A S O T T I, and that um, there's the progress has been really just visually. Remarkable, and and when you wake up in the morning, Justin, how much better do you feel than than you felt when you arrived in Mexico? Oh, the difference is remarkable. I like I'm a more alert 
I can actually do stuff. I can work out with a big part of my life before. And, yeah. yeah. yeah it's just wonderful to see his smile. It's, yeah. And it, how he, when he wakes up and he, he wants to go, he wants to get up and go for a walk. You two guys are the best. You're a great father-son team. And I'm... Uh, well, know. he's the best son you could possibly ever have. Um, he's just an amazing kid. We will stay in touch, and we will continue to press for assistance for you and for what needs to be done. I mean, it's Christmas, and if you, know, if you do something for Christmas, do something for, for Justin Masati if you can. And maybe we should remind the Ontario government that, that it's Christmas and um, not just worry about the regulations that they write which they can point at and say, well, the regulations say we can't help. Well, sometimes you help because it makes sense to help. And if you look at Justin's progress, just visually, it makes sense to help. Guys, we're going to stay in touch, and um, I know that Canadians care about you, and it's so terrific to see that video. It is so great to see it. I'm so happy. For both of you. Thank you, family. Okay, keep working out, Justin. Oh, I will. All right. I'm going to look forward to the next video, and I'll post it. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. You remember Trent Hill's Ontario Mayor Hector McMillan had the uh, pancreatic cancer surgery done in Germany. And uh, successfully, even though it wasn't offered here in Ontario, where I'm situated, the uh, the IRE nanoknife machine was available in Toronto, but they couldn't do the surgery, and uh, they weren't going to pay. Ontario wasn't going to pay for out-of-province or out-of-country surgery. And so the mayor, also with assistance from many people on GoFundMe, went to Germany and had the nanoknife surgery done there. And I talked to, uh, exchanged emails with Hector just a couple of days ago, and He's doing great. He's doing great. You hear that? He's doing great. Um, I also heard from Sean Eckert from uh, Saskat- Saskatchewan. And uh, I don't know if he's from Saskatoon, but we're going to find out in a second. He's in Germany with his father and his mother. His father also had pancreatic cancer. Had. Same situation as Hector McMillan. Needed the IRE, IRE nano knife surgery. The machine exists in Saskatoon, but the surgery was not offered. Um Sean, it's good to talk. It's great to talk to you because your dad's surgery was on Wednesday and everything turned out tremendously well. Yeah, the surgery the surgery was on Thursday. This is day three post-op. And Professor Burt is giving two thumbs up to everything thus far. Uh, Dad's up and moving around. Had a couple showers in the past couple days. Looking good, getting color back, feeling good. First time in seven months that we're on a a uh, curing road or a curing path. Wonderful, wonderful. Take us through the take us through your journey. I won't interrupt. Just walk us through what we need to know about what happened in your family. So our trek began about seven months ago with the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. We had the diagnosis and <clears throat> we're wading our way through the bureaucracy, which is 
uh, Canadian slash Saskatchewan Healthcare. We ended up actually trekking down to the Mayo Clinic in Arizona to get a, a verification of the diagnosis and also get a chemotherapy plan together. We feel like this really kick-started the chemotherapy because we had a plan in place. We had a quarterback, if you will, that helped us out, got us rolling. We came back to Canada for five rounds of chemotherapy treatment. Chemotherapy had minimal to zero success as they were doing CTs and MRIs through this process. At that time, it was mentioned to us that we're going to discontinue the high dosage or the strong recipe for chemotherapy, focus on maintenance chemotherapy, which results in quality of life. At this point, with what we had learned at the Mayo Clinic and researched on our own, we weren't going to give up. We fought hard for two more rounds of the strong chemotherapy. And at this time is when we introduced the IRE or nanomife surgery to our oncologist and the Saskatchewan healthcare system, which we learned through our research that we even had a machine in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So at that point, we were kind of on two parallel paths. We were researching the Germany path, which Hector helped and trailblazed. We were also pushing the Saskatchewan path, one that was our research really wasn't presented to us. And at one point, we had hope that the surgery could take place in Saskatoon. Uh, It was being talked about and discussed, was even mentioned, that we may have to pay for it privately. And just as fast as the hope came, it was yanked away. And it was said to us, you better go to Germany because we may not fire this machine up for another two to three months. So here we are, packed our bags, came to Germany November 26th, and like I said, three days ago was the first time that we were actually on a road to a cure and a treatment that may work, other than being sent home and put on a chemotherapy plan in Saskatchewan that really didn't cure anything or treat it. It was just a quality of life. So, very emotional week for us. Very positive week. Very disappointed in our system that we have back home, especially when there's machines, one in Toronto, one in Saskatoon, that aren't being used. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If, if you had followed the conventional advice that you were given, your father's prognosis was clear. If we followed the conventional advice... We'd be counting down the weeks or counting down the months where we didn't have a very important person in our lives. When you contacted the Germans, were they immediately positive? I know they were for Hector and it was, we'll get it done, we'll get it done quickly and get over here. Everything's about speed and timing and they're clear and concise communication lists. You deal directly with Professor Burt that did the surgery. There's no bureaucracy. There's no messing around. You send an email. We never met the person. We never did anything. We had responses within hours of the same day on what to do, how to get it done. Our biggest hurdles were getting the funding together and figuring out our logistics. By the time we got here, checked into the hospital, it was 12 minutes. We were in our room, good to go, and within an hour or two, Professor Burt was in to go through everything with us. 
12, 12 minutes. hours later, he's given us two thumbs up. Wow. That is, I mean, that is health care. That is response. That is what, what, what is deserved and earned in this country. The machines are there. Use them. Sean, is there, is there a, a record to indicate how successful this procedure turns out to be for pancreatic cancer surgery? Well, each case is a little bit separate, but to date, I believe Professor Burt said there was 180 procedures performed within this hospital with about 90% success rate, wow. maybe higher, and they're tracking everybody individually. Um, one of the things we signed off on is to have access to our information and any follow-up reports, tests done. We are forwarding them here to keep uh, monitoring. Around the world, there's probably, I would say, two to three times that amount of procedures done. So absolutely, when it's pancreas, when it's liver, this seems to be the treatment that is of highest results. And we have one in our backyard. We do. We have two of them. Two of them. One in Toronto, one in Saskatoon. What's the message to Canadians who are receiving these diagnoses that are terrifying? Well, my driving points... My driving points are, you know, you got to fight, you got to push, you got to lobby, you got to advocate. Don't accept your fate at face value. Explore other healthcare systems. Research everything. Document it. Remember not to lose focus on the cure or the treatment. You can fight the political, ethical battle once the treatment or the cure is in place. Yes, sir. And what I'd ask Canadians to do is to talk about it. Listen about it, talk about it. We can get some things done. We've got the technology. We're seeing the results. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to follow up with you and with Hector and with Mike um, in the next couple of weeks on this program. Now, I understand a shout-out is in order. This is... Go ahead. Go ahead, John. Yeah, absolutely. This isn't over. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It cannot, it cannot afford to be over. It cannot. But I understand that there's a shout-out in order. Yeah, I want to give a shout-out to my two wonderful kids back home, Meredith, who's five, and Cash, who's three. It's many, many nights away from their dad and my beautiful wife, so excellent support from them. Huge support to all our family and friends back home for all the Facebook messages, the GoFundMe, the Red Night fundraisers. Without that group, we would not be here. So I owe my heart to everybody that's involved. Sean, uh, is there still can people still contribute at, uh, at GoFundMe for you, for your dad? GoFundMe, GoFundMe is still up and running. One of the things uh, I've had a couple requests to help other folks get GoFundMe uh, campaigns rolling. I've had a request from the Helios Professor Burt to put together some information and get a workbook together so that we can start getting more Canadians over here so that we can see the same results okay, that we're, we're seeing with my dad. We will follow We will follow up with Canadians you. That are battling with liver and pancreas. Yeah, we'll follow up with you, uh, Sean, and so we'll, do right, we'll do that program. We'll do that program in the next couple of weeks. Thank you for joining us today, and it's great news about your dad. Thanks so much. Excellent. Thank you, Roy. We'll talk soon. Sean Eckert in Germany. There's the Eckert family story, and we will follow up with Sean with Hector and with Mike and Justin.
The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.